This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intricasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss with psychiatrist Dr. Lewis Cohen his recently published work, A Dignified Ending, Taking Control Over How We Die. Dr. Cohen's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. Dr. Cohen, welcome to the program. Hey, David. Thank you so much. And uh, you can go with Dr. Cohen or you can call me Lou. Okay. Well, I think I'll devolve into Lou. Thank you. Briefly on background, assisted suicide or medical aid in dying is today legal in nine states and D.C. in order of passage, Oregon in 1994, followed by Washington, Montana, Vermont, California, Colorado and D.C., Hawaii, New Jersey this year, and it will be legal starting next year in the state of Maine. The option is available to approximately one-fifth of the U.S. population in some Related legislation has also been proposed in over 20 other or additional states. Ten state medical societies now allow physicians to follow a course of treatment that comports with their conscience. Concerning public opinion, a 2018 Gallup poll found that three out of four Americans support laws allowing patients to seek the assistance of a physician in ending their life. Overseas, medical aid in dying is legal in several countries including Belgium, Canada, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, and Switzerland. Listeners may be aware end of life has been the topic of several previous interviews. My last related was with the journalist Ann Newman this past April 15th concerning a Harper's article this past February on mercy killings. With me again to discuss his latest work is Dr. Lewis Cohen, A Dignified Ending. Uh, Lou, uh, with that as a brief background or introduction, let me start by asking you, particularly since you're a psychiatrist, how did suicide become defined as a mental illness? Uh, well, um, there was, if you will, an evolution that has taken place um, where if you want to... Uh, uh, start back in biblical times in which there's uh, maybe five or half a dozen uh, instances uh, that are spelled out of people who took their lives, who committed suicide. Uh, one of the interesting things is that uh, in the Bible, um, and I'm counting the New Testament in this, um, those acts, those suicidal acts, are not looked on uh, necessarily in a negative way. Uh, if anything, they are, many of them are viewed with considerable admiration um, and as uh, things that one might uh, even aspire to. Um, and uh, um, so in Christianity, in Judaism, uh, there was an evolution in thinking um, that uh, uh, can be seen. Uh, if you go back, by the way, to uh, Greek and Roman times, uh, there have been different periods uh, in which, again, uh, taking one's life um, was viewed as not necessarily a negative thing or um, an aberrant thing, uh, but a noble death was something that the Stoics uh, um, 
put out there as something that people uh, should uh, espouse and uh, uh, hope to achieve, that people should be able to die in a way that's consistent with how they lived. Um, It's really in, uh, it comes with Augustine uh, in the 5th century that uh, suddenly there's a link made uh, among the religious uh, in which... uh, um, they point to the Ten Commandments and the Thou shalt not uh, uh, kill or murder. Um, and uh, Augustine suggested that that applied also to killing oneself. Um, and uh, suddenly uh, suicide became a sin. Uh, suicide became uh, not just a sin, um, but uh, uh, something that was uh, prohibited, something that had uh, religious consequences um, uh, in medieval times. Um, um, one was assured that one was going to go right to hell, um, and suddenly laws were being passed, civil laws were being passed. Um, at that time, a big piece of it probably was a uh, financially driven part of things, uh, which is that by killing yourself, you're depriving your liege lord um, of all the things that you could be producing uh, for him. Um, And uh, so uh, um, suicide was punished in various ways, uh, including one's estate was uh, taken over by that liege lord. Um, And uh, um, superstitions began to come into play and people would be intentionally buried if they killed themselves in the crossroads. Uh, Mm -hmm. So folk could literally uh, walk over their dead bodies. Um, Those bodies were sometimes, uh, um, a stake was driven through the heart. Um, And and you began to get um, criminal um, statutes placed um, where people who attempted suicide um, were also considered criminals uh, and would be punished uh, in various ways. And it isn't probably until the 19th century, and I'm sorry, David, if this is a a long answer to a short question. No, please. Um, It's not until the really the 19th century, um, um, 20th century, um, that uh, um, there's a transformation from sin to crime to mental illness. Um, and uh, uh, the suicide um, falls into the purview of psychiatric uh, uh, medicine and becomes something that uh, um, uh, psychiatrists, psychologists, clinicians, behavioral medicine clinicians uh, um, are uh, instructed to attend to and to prevent these things from happening. Okay, thank you. So uh, as we'll get to, suicide can be, a symptom of mental illness, but in not not in all cases, which clearly you imply in your book. Relative to going back, I did find it interesting. You started your volume by a discussion of Hercules and Philoctetes, which you don't normally see uh, in in these works. So I applaud you for uh, that discussion, uh, in part. Uh, just as an aside, I'm curious to know if you know, relative to insurance policies, uh, say say you're in one of these nine. Uh, states that I mentioned, and say you're in Oregon, and you, uh, although it may be on the on the uh, death certificate, natural causes, but say it's physician aid and dying, the, how do insurance policies uh, interpret that? Because typically, right. if you commit suicide, 
there's no need of a, a life policy, there's the company won't pay. Although, if you look a little bit more carefully, um, that is uh, often there's a time limit on that um, in which the clock begins ticking when people um, take out those policies. Um, and I don't know if it's six months or one year, um, but beyond that, if you committed suicide, you would still um, be entitled to your life insurance back. Um, but that's an aside. Yes, uh, the, okay. The, the direct answer to your question is that every one of the uh, legislators uh, that have put together the laws regarding assisted uh, suicide, we'll call it, uh, and, I, and I should say, by the way, I'm perfectly comfortable in this book, and I choose to use all the terms. Mm -hmm. uh, assisted suicide, assisted dying, uh, medical assistance in dying, and so on. Um, but uh, the laws that have been passed in this country, each one of them tackles exactly the question you've raised, and each one makes, makes it explicit um, that the insurance companies cannot um, um, avoid payment of life insurance um, for people who make use of those laws. Okay, thank um, you. Helpful. Let's get into the book. There's several themes uh, in the volume. Uh, let me start with uh, two I found particularly interesting and useful, uh, and those are your discussions of aid and dying in context of patients with disabilities and those with Alzheimer's or cognitive impairment. On the former, uh, the disability community has been, for good reason, uh, very concerned about this option. Uh, can you explain... Uh, what their concern has been, and how this issue has been addressed for those patients with otherwise uh, disabilities. Sure. And, and you've put your finger, David, on uh, the two areas that when I started writing this book, I had not anticipated would be of interest to me or occupy as much of the book as they do. Um, they just became things that I, I couldn't get away from, mm -hmm. um, that I just, you know, needed to sink my teeth into. Um, the first thing is to recognize that the so-called disability community is not any kind of uniform um, group of people with a particular stance, but rather, um, you know, like the American population uh, is filled with different opinions uh, on every issue. Um, and so um, I have certainly encountered many folk who identify as having disabilities um, who um, are ardent supporters um, of their right to be able to take to have and to be able to take advantage of the sorts of laws uh, that you've uh, enumerated. Um, um, and they often will become spokespersons when these um, laws are um, debated uh, in state legislators, le legislatures. Um, you do profile the, the other, you do profile the other end, which is the the organization interestingly titled "Not Dead Yet" from the Monty Python movie. Uh, they are right, more they are right. more cautious. Um, they are ardent. Um, activists who are strongly in opposition uh, to such laws, and they come out regularly um, to any of the debates that take place or any of the opportunities to give depositions or testimonies uh, about these laws, and they come out firmly against it. And I've been 
uh, fascinated by them, and I tried to follow uh, what they have to say on this uh, on this subject. Um, John Kelly um, is one of their leaders, and um, he features uh, prominently um, in the book. Um, I mean, he's a man who I can relate to in terms of um, white, educated. Um, interested in um, the world around him, um, but someone who has now been um, restricted to a wheelchair uh, for a number of years and who has become an uh, uh, avid spokesperson um, for a point of view. And in Massachusetts, uh, he has played a major part, I think, in preventing that our state, the state that I live in, um, from, in fact, uh, passing uh, a law to address this to become one of the uh, uh, communities that has passed a law. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, what I've learned from John, uh, what I've learned from uh, listening to the other activists in Not, Not Dead Yet, uh, which sprung up, by the way, in reaction to Jack Kevorkian's um, public relations campaign. Right, and we'll get to um, him. Read, okay. But what I've learned is uh, that these are folk who are terrified, um, and there's no other word for it, at what these laws, uh, the harm that they can do um, to the disability community, a uh, community that is uh, dependent on um, receiving accommodations, um, receiving medical care and support um, that allow them to maximally function in this world. Um, and uh, what they view laws like this as, and again, I'm speaking for them, and I you know, uh, apologize if I don't get it quite right. They would mm-hmm. be quick to tell me I'm not getting it quite right. Um, but and you point that out in your I, book, I, yes. <laughs> yeah, John, for one, um, truly lambasts me, and I don't hesitate about quoting him on it. Um, but, you know, what they believe is that uh, the effort should not be uh, placed on helping people to die. Uh, from their standpoint, um, this, is a, this is suicide, um, and that's the term that they use all the time, and that this society is being hypocritical when, on one hand, it um, espouses all sorts of prevention and treatment um, to help people not commit suicide. And then on the other hand, when folk come down with uh, terminal illnesses, um, we have these laws that say, um, yes, um, we will uh, um, facilitate and help you and and set up some rules that will allow you to uh, end your life. Well, it's understandable that this is obviously a, a, a population of very vulnerable people, and I think the phrase uh, you use in your book relative to describing their concern is that um, aid in dying is a seductively inexpensive alternative to comprehensive palliative care. So I, I did note that. I thought that was uh, well phrased relative to capturing um, uh, their concern. You do note relative vulnerability, their unemployment and poverty rate, which, of course, contributes to this uh, sadly. Let's go to... Um, Persons are, uh, with uh, cognitive impairment or Alzheimer's, you know the statistic one in eight older adults, over five million Americans. Uh, you argue that under certain circumstances, it should be allowable. Uh, can you explain how that, what those circumstances or what that circumstance is? 
Okay. Um, I will be glad to, but let me first say that the story that I weave through that touches on this most directly is of a young woman who comes down with a dementia Mm -hmm. um, and who had stated from her earliest time that she had no interest in going whole hog with it. Um, She wanted to have her life ended before it reached the point of being severe. Um, And her husband was in agreement and the rest of her family was in agreement. Uh, But people, uh, the human organism adapts. Uh, And in her case, um, time went on and she became more demented and uh, she ends up dying uh, after several years uh, having been placed in an Alzheimer's uh, unit. And I come out of this, you know, I come out of it sort of feeling like um, there was a moment maybe when things could have been done differently and she could have been helped to die. Um, But that moment passed and that the right thing was done in terms of um, both uh, providing her uh, with care so that she could uh, maximally um, enjoy um, her life um, as as a person who was suffering with a severe dementia. So that said, that's the story that I end up telling. And yet it's Personally, um, for me, it's a terrifying story um, because I had a father um, who uh, came down with a dementia and for the last half dozen years of his life not only was unable to recognize family, um, was, uh, uh, of course, incontinent um, and um, who actually was unable to speak. And to me, that represents uh, the the most terrifying experience, I guess, in, in many regards I've ever had. Um, it represents for me what, what he went through was what I would consider to be a fate worse than death. And so uh, um, that, unbeknownst to me, psychiatrist though I may be, uh, was churning under the surface when I began to write this book. Um, And I have done a fair amount of thinking about uh, are there any provisions that can be made um, to prevent um, that from going uh, that way? Um, Are there any provisions um, so that you could modify the assisted dying laws um, so that they would be available um, to people who have, let's say, early dementias? Mm-hmm. And you do note that if people compose an advanced directive, that they then therefore need no longer to be competent at the point uh, loved ones implement their wishes for a medically assisted death. So well, it could me, be. So you are. The, so the suggestion is it could be sequenced. I'm sorry. The suggestion is it could be sequenced. Well, let's start off with all of the existing laws that we have regarding assisted dying require that people be terminally ill, that they be um, within six months Mm -hmm. of death before they qualify. And the thing about folk with dementias, and particularly early dementias, is that they're not. Right. So they are automatically excluded from... um, being able to take advantage of such laws. The point in which they, in fact, are terminally ill, that they are within six months, that being the defining uh, number, um, they are almost always severely, severely 
um, demented. And I don't see any way that any of the laws are, in fact, going to um, permit such people in such a condition um, to receive assisted dying. I, I don't see how that's going to happen. Where I think we can begin to ultimately modify laws, what Canada will likely do, not definitely, but will likely do over the next year, because uh, they're going to be examining their laws, um, is to take advantage, as you said, David, of special advanced directives that people compose, people like myself who are terrified of getting demented and who will write an advanced directive that's going to spell out uh, some provisions uh, as to what I would want, what they would want uh, in the event that they begin to have a, an obvious dementia. Um, those folk may be, I hope, um, um, able to um, be included within a new modified version of the laws. Uh, in the same way, I might add that people with uh, multiple sclerosis mm -hmm. or ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, are not covered by and large by most of the uh, laws, by, by all the laws here in the States. It would take some, um, if you will, tweaking of those laws, changes of those laws, thoughtful changes of those laws to include all those neurodegenerative disorders. Okay, thank you. So the, the six months, uh, that's also not uh, coincidentally uh, how you qualify for the Medicare hospice benefit. Of course, uh, diseases don't progress like clockwork, so that six-month particularly for non-cancer diagnoses, is pretty much guesswork. So that begs the question which you ask in the volume, the related, should aid in dying be restricted to the terminally ill? And, and your answer should be possibly uh, not necessarily, meaning that um, the choice does not have to be made or could be made outside the six-month window. Yes. Let, let, you know, the stories that the book begins with, I'm, I'm sorry, no, in fact, I thank you for noting. I should note a, a good deal of the discussion in this volume uh, is succeeds by your noting uh, probably upwards of a dozen uh, examples or case studies. I was going to ask you. You spent a fair amount of time, interestingly enough, on Sigmund Freud's sixteen years of cancer, and then probably the one that seemed the most. Uh, uh, straightforward was Admiral Chester and Joan Nimitz's uh, simultaneous decision to terminate uh, their lives. So those are both useful. Let me ask, relative to Freud, uh, Nimitz, and amongst others, um, would you think of one that's most illustrative? Well, um, they they all have, if you will, Ethical and physical differences, but the one I'd like to talk about, if I could a little bit, just to follow your point, is the Chester Nimitz Jr. Um, um, and Joan Nimitz uh, stories. Um, and the, the reason I'd like to bring them up um, is because neither of them had a terminal illness, uh, neither of them would have qualified uh, under the existing laws, and yet... I leave it as I tell their stories um, to the reader um, to sort of make your own mind up whether 
you think they did the right thing and whether it – which was, uh, in fact, you know, this was before the laws had gotten passed. Um, they accumulated some medication um, and they took it uh, with the approval of their families, with the knowledge of their families uh, who were supportive of them in doing it. Um, but I think it's up to the reader to scratch uh, one's head and say, does this make sense to me? Because um, it does to me as the writer – I mean, when I um, write about them, uh, when I came to understand them, we were talking about a World War II hero, um, the son of um, the most famous and justifiably celebrated uh, World War II uh, naval hero, um, but a man who was a hero in in and of himself, uh, who, uh, when he became elderly, um, accumulated a number of physical ills. Um, including he became incontinent, and it was intolerant. He, he was in, uh, he found it intolerable um, as a uh, uh, officer um, to um, be incontinent. Um, he and his wife, who had some other chronic problems, who could no longer uh, she had some vision problems and could no longer. Uh, pursue the uh, reading and uh, um, activities that she enjoyed, um, they decided that uh, they'd had enough. Uh, They also decided that from a financial standpoint, um, they were people who had made a lot, he had made a lot of money after he left Mm -hmm. the Navy. um, And uh, it was important to him and to his wife to leave um, their estate uh, intact for their children and grandchildren. Uh, that was the most, in many ways, important thing, uh, or one of the most important things for them. And um, they were, um, they, they found it abhorrent, uh, the thought of uh, having to spend uh, their uh, carefully accumulated money um, on uh, uh, medical care. Um, and uh, again, that fueled their decision. And, you know, I, it, it took me a bit of head-scratching to sort of figure, is this a legitimate reason? Um, neither terminally ill, but they have these um, things that uh, are important to them and that they're suffering because um, uh, their lives have changed now. Um, so, uh, again, it's, it's, a, uh, it's a case that, uh, to me, I think, uh, really set me to thinking about this subject and left me feeling like the existing laws that we have um, are going to need to evolve. You know, that's a, the, it, my notes on your case uh, relative to the admiral and his wife is that they hit the three most common uh, uh, causes or reasons, autonomy, uh, dignity, and not wanting to be a burden on their family. There are other reasons, but those are common and they seem to be reflected in in the Nimitz case. Let me, since we mentioned Kevorkian, I I did want to uh, have a question concerning, you you do have a discussion about uh, Jack Kevorkian, um, who probably needs no... um, uh, it doesn't need to be uh, his life uh, explained. He was tried uh, four times. He was convicted on the fifth trial, served eight years in prison, and interestingly died shortly after his his release. 
your comments, I believe, on balance are generally favorable of his work and effort. Of course, he's been vilified uh, since his passing now, um, what, uh, about 10, 12 years ago now, 11 years ago. Um, can you explain what your assessment of, uh, of Kevorkian? Yeah, uh, my own thinking about Jack Kevorkian has um, shifted, has changed, um, because I, like most physicians, I would say, of my day, who witnessed his public relations stunts and listened to him um, espousing um, why he should be allowed to help uh, these various people who came to him to die. Um, I, I was initially um, quite, I wouldn't say skeptical, I was opposed um, to what mm-hmm. I heard. Um, I thought that uh, he was doing some shameful things in public and that he was giving a black eye to my profession. Um, but I got to say, the years go by and I now listen to his message and even watch his antics um, with sort of a, a whole different way of uh, thinking. Um, I now um, believe that in point of fact, these incredibly suffering people who came to him, um, who sought his assistance in dying because no other physician uh, was prepared to help them that way, um, that there was something absolutely courageous Uh, about the man, uh, that there was some nobility to it. His public relations stunts, um, which I thought were um, just terrible to watch, um, have left him, years after his death, he remains the one person, uh, the one name Mm -hmm. uh, in the Right to Die uh, movement uh, who people know, as you say, doesn't require much of an introduction. Um, And then there's a further piece I briefly touched on Canada, um, and what Jack Kevorkian did that resulted in him being sent um, to uh, prison um, is now pretty close to what um, the current practice is um, in Canada, uh, which is to say what what Jack Kevorkian did uh, with uh, the man who came forward to him with uh, um, ALS Um, was to, um, he set up an apparatus basically that injected um, a barbiturate uh, into his veins um, and caused him to uh, uh, die. Um, And now in Canada, uh, and this is in contrast to the states, um, something like 95% of the um, patients who seek medical assistance in dying uh, under the Canadian law, um, what, what happens to them at the end at their request, and they have a choice, they could take pills the way we do in this country, but what happens to the 95% or so uh, of the folk is that, in fact, the physician comes, sets up an intravenous, uh, and injects a barbiturate um, that uh, um, allows them to die. Right, more more active, more active there than here, passive, where the physician yes. fills out a, a prescription. We have time for, I think, a concluding question. There is also discussion in the book, sadly, we won't get to about the Hemlock Society's efforts, caring friends. Uh, you do conclude with a discussion about uh, an organization, Final Exit Network, 
Dr. Larry Egbert. Um, that story goes off the rails, or Larry, Dr. Larry Egbert's efforts. And that, I think, somewhat is related to the point just made. So uh, there, correct me if I'm wrong, but the perception of, of the effort by uh, uh, FEN was they were too proactive uh, correct is that correct or what what's the difference between why caring friends seem to succeed and final exit network did not okay um, so first of all both organizations uh, quite similar um, final exit network evolved uh, from caring friends mm-hmm. and included many of the same people and Essentially, it was an organization of volunteers, it, and Final Exit Network now is very much the same. Mm-hmm. Um, that um, is, it, it, you can look online and track them down, and um, if a person is uh, suffering, um, and especially if they are living in a state that, no, that does not have, that has not yet gotten around to uh, passing laws, um, dealing with assisted dying. Uh, these are folk who will help to do an assessment uh, of the person's medical situation. Um, and uh, if they meet certain criteria that the organization has set, um, we'll send uh, volunteers who are knowledgeable um, to the person's home um, and we'll provide them with information as to what they might do uh, if they choose to uh, foreshorten their life. Um, and um, this is an organization where the, the uh, uh, volunteers uh, are willing to provide um, physical support uh, in the sense of being, and let me just change that, are, are willing to provide emotional support and are willing to actually be with the person uh, at the moment uh, in which uh, this takes place. We'll be in touch with their family and... Uh, um, <sighs> The difference between what happened with Caring Friends and what's, what's been happening with Final Exit Network, uh, which uh, is still, as I say, actively uh, out there, um, and I attended um, their annual board meeting this year and was incredibly impressed by the sincerity of the, the people who gathered, um, is that uh, Caring Friends uh, kept things pretty quiet. Uh, and they restricted uh, their attention to members of the Hemlock Society, uh, an earlier organization. Uh, Final Exit Network pushed the envelope further, opened themselves up to the general public, uh, and even went so far as when they began to be scrutinized um, by law enforcement, uh, have a uh, public relations campaign uh, that uh, in many regards backfired um, by uh, uh, polar, further polarizing people's opinions about them. Um, but i got to say, like Jack Kevorkian, my own thinking about this group um, has become much more, if you will, um, respectful um, of uh, what they do and what they ascribe to do. I would, the word I was thinking was nuanced. So um, I, I would, yes, that's even better. <laughs> thank you. So, uh, Dr. Cohen, we're uh, at our time. Again, the book, A Dignified Ending, Taking Control of How We Die, uh, recently uh, published. There'll be a link to it uh, with the audio. So let me say thank you for your time and, and review of this. 
maybe in the future, uh, relative to your next writing or future writings, we'll get back to uh, Mr. Freud um, <laughs> and discuss his, discuss since you're you're trained in that field. So thank you again, Dr. Cohen. Bye bye. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast, hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.